Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Okay, I'm going to get going here this evening. Thanks for joining me from my office. And first thing I want to say is how wonderful it was to be together this morning for worship. It was uh, a joy, especially to hear um, to hear singing and to hear our voices join together. And so that was wonderful. Uh, also, thank thank the deacons and uh, a couple of the elders who uh, stuck around afterwards for about an hour and a half and uh, washed all the pews down with soap and water and also disinfectant in the bathrooms and all that stuff happened. So you can be, um, you can rest easy that the building should be in a good state for us to come back together next Sunday. So thank a deacon, thank an elder for uh, the work that went down uh, there. It, um, let's, uh, let's begin with prayer and then I'm going to read Hebrews 13. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to gather and contemplate you and your word. Lord, we pray that you would bless this evening, this next hour, and that we would be fed, that we would be strengthened for the work that you have given us to do in the coming week, and that we would walk in a manner worthy of our Savior. Pray that we would love him, that we would serve him, that our minds would meditate upon him and his glory, Father, that we would we would truly enjoy you and who you are. And so, Father, guide us this evening, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read Hebrews 13. That's our, we've been reading through Hebrews in the evening services, and we've come to the end of the book, uh, Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Let love the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this evening, again, Having having preached this morning in front of people, it just underscores to me the awkwardness of me sitting in my office looking at my computer, looking at a, a, a webcam, and looking at a microphone that's up here. And so um, I don't enjoy this. I'd rather we were together and uh, the preaching would certainly be better. You wouldn't have to hear me stutter and mumble as much as... Um, I do in this format. Uh, you would just get the normal dose of stuttering and ums and whatnot. But here we are and thankful to be able to do this. And when things, as we phase more through the next month and months ahead, then hopefully we'll be back to uh, the way things were before. But I want to do things a little bit differently this evening. We're not going to turn to 2 Samuel this evening. That's where we uh, have been in the evening services for a long time. But tonight I want to do something a little bit different, something that's really uh, been on my mind. It's been on my heart. And, and so that's where I'm going. And I'll begin it this way. And, and I don't think you'll be surprised by anything. Uh, that I say initially, if you've been following, you know, if you've been hearing my sermons as of late, but this is, this is my uh, main concern this evening. I am, I am wearied by Christian opinions about politics. Wearied by Christian opinions about politics. And really it's because of the COVID-19 and the relationship that the church has with the state and the state's actions recently that has opened up the floodgates for uh, Christians to be um, expressing their opinions about political matters. And I, honestly, you know, that, that I just said I'm wearied by Christian opinions about politics is not something uh, for the first 14 years of my ministry as a pastor I would have said. I would have, I would have said up to this point that I'm wearied 
by pastors uh, distancing themselves from political matters. And that really had to do with our fight against abortion in this nation. It's very, it was, it's always been very difficult for me to get reformed pastors to come down to the abortion mill to protest. And some of them don't do it for very specific theological reasons. They don't want to be involved in politics. And, and so, you know, the, the drum that I've beaten for so long is where's the church? Where, where, why is the church not loving her neighbor? Why is the church not getting involved in political matters? Well, now I see every Tom, Dick and Harry um, getting involved in political matters in the church from um, reformed churches to Baptist churches to um, evangelical mega churches to everything. And it is, you know, to cross politic to um, I mean, that's their very their very reason for existing is to bring the church into political matters. And and I, I'll say it's necessary to think on Christianity and the public sphere. It is absolutely something that we have to give ourselves to. We don't want to be cowards and remove ourselves from the table and remove a public Christian witness that must be there. But as in many things, we can overdo it. We can overdo it. And when we overdo it, we lose sight of the simple Christian gospel. Um, We can get so involved in matters of, of politics, I mean, just personally, that we personally become weighed down and forget the simple Christian gospel. Man sinned, God redeemed mankind, and he's drawing redeemed men into his presence. It's the simple Christian gospel, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Right? Christians long to be with Jesus. Christians long to be with Jesus, even Reformed Christians. We're not going to give that motto up to the evangelicals, right? Uh, my sins, my personal sins have been removed from me as far as east is from west. Um, Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus is the propitiation for my sins. These amazing cataclysmic things that should fill our hearts with joy and we should always be uh, proclaiming them before everybody else that we come across. Um, There's a sense in which we need as Reformed Christians to tenaciously remain evangelical, right? And not merely become entrenched Reformed brainiacs, right? Evangelical, believing in the inerrancy of scripture and a personal savior and a personal savior, a God who loves us with whom we have a covenanted relationship, those simple things. And that's really what I want to get us uh, thinking about tonight. Uh, Jesus said to the, the church in Ephesus, uh, and, in, and this is instructive for us because I think this is where the American Reformed Church really is. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false 
and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Right? Think about that letter. This is Revelation chapter 2, that letter to the church in Ephesus and all the glorious things they've done. And particularly think about that, that comment in there, you cannot tolerate evil men. Right? That is a way that we could summarize the Reformed Church right now. We cannot tolerate evil men. And yet, their indictment, they had left behind their first love. And, and that, Jesus calls, is a fall. Remember from where you have fallen, right? To be, to be um, and obviously we know from the Gospels that we could, we could cast out demons, we could uh, perform miracles, and yet Jesus could say to us, depart from me, I never knew you. Right. And so we we need to think about this. We need to think about this personally. We need to think about this as a church. We can be precise in what we hate. We can be so precise about the things that we hate, um, the things that we will not tolerate. And even still fall from grace. We can even fail to continue to have a warm affection for Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, I know I'm swimming upstream here. And I know many of you probably want to accuse me of false dichotomies and whatnot. But every time a pastor preaches, he can be accused of not painting the whole picture or false dichotomies or things like that. These are things that I believe uh, we must get right. I believe the church in America today, uh, which is so precise about what she opposes, is in, is in danger of leaving behind her first love. The work of the church today is, is reactionary, right? We too cannot tolerate evil men, but in being reactionary and spending our time in, in solely opposing what is evil, we forget to rest and enjoy and rejoice in God who is glorious, right? In seeking for social justice, whether that be race relations or church-state relations, all of which are worthy pursuits, we can do so in a way that causes us to leave behind our first love, our love for God as our Savior, as the only one worthy of praise, right? And so when we seek for social justice, God becomes a means to an end rather than an end in and of himself. And, and so when that happens, religious affections grow cold. We may have a zeal, but it's a misdirected zeal. And we may have a zeal for, for God's law. We may have a zeal for, uh, for, for God's... Um, will, but in a sense, we can have those things and not have a, a zeal for God himself. 
So I want to remind us of basic Christianity. That's what I want to do. And I want to do so by summarizing uh, a rather complicated work from Jonathan Edwards, a work called A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. It's my hope this will help us get back to basic Christianity and a sort of uh, return to our first love. So what, what was Edwards' uh, a treatise uh, concerning religious affections? Well, Edwards, as you know, was a pastor in the 1700s in America, so prior to the founding of the nation. And he ministered during a time uh, called the First Great Awakening. It's really a, a revival of religion in America. The first, there was a Second Great Awakening in the uh, 19th century, but this in the 18th century, Edwards was one of the, you know, main observers of what was going on. And, and of course, one of the things that was strange about the time is you had a lot of conversions and you had a lot of radical conversions and you had a lot of false conversions. And so, Edwards writes this book, a treatise concerning religious affections, um, sort of to answer the question of what proves you're a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? And so I want to go through this uh, very quickly and uh, as quickly as I can. And it should provoke us to think about that question. Now, that's that's basic Christianity. Are you a Christian? Right? How do you know it? How do you know that you're a Christian? Or, or what are the signs that you're a Christian? And what, what things are, are not signs that we often think are signs of being a Christian? And so Jonathan Edwards was concerned with the faith of his flock. He knew that in order to be faithful to his calling, he must constantly make judgments judgments about the hearts and consciences of the people of his church. So Edwards shepherded his flock during a time of revival. Um, and so when the spirit works, Satan works too. Uh, doing counterfeiting work that goes along with or beside or tries to uh, take the place of the work of the spirit. And so in this uh, treatise concerning religious affections, Edwards thinks how thinks through how we may discern between true religion and counterfeit religion. He works through some of the possible indications of whether someone has been truly converted by the Spirit or whether they have not been converted, though they may be religious or moral or, or spiritual. Edwards wrote this. He said, And so it is likely ever to be in the church. Whenever religion revives remarkably, till we have learned well to distinguish between true and false religion, between saving affections and experiences, and those manifold fair shows and glistering appearances by which they are counterfeited, the consequences of which, when they are not distinguished, are often inexpressibly dreadful. But this means the devil gratifies himself, that multitudes should offer to God under the notion of acceptable service, what is indeed above all things abominable to him. But this means he deceives great multitudes about the state of their souls, making them think they are something when they are nothing. And so eternally undoes them, and not only so, but establishes many in a strong confidence of their eminent holiness, who in God's sight are some of the vilest hypocrites. So he's beginning to work out this question of what, how do we know 
we're a Christian? How do we know we're not just uh, deceived and deceived by Satan, who would be delighted to uh, prowl around like a roaring lion and devour people thinking, and especially thinking that um, they are the Lord's. So where does Edward settle? What conclusions does he come to when addressing the question of how we might have some assurance that someone is truly converted or not, whether his heart, the, the seed of the affections, is fully devoted to God or not, whether he loves God or not, whether the love of God has been poured out in his heart or not, or whether his affections arise uh, from himself or his affections um, are from God himself. Well, in the middle of things uh, of this long treatise, he states clearly that God is the only one who infallibly knows those who have regenerate hearts. And we would agree with that, right? Um, How great, therefore, may the resemblance be as to all outward expressions and appearances between a hypocrite and a true saint. Doubtless, it is the glorious prerogative of the omniscient God as the great searcher of hearts to be able well to separate between these sheep and goats. And what an indecent self-exaltation and arrogance it is in poor, fallible, dark mortals to pretend that they can determine and know who are really sincere and upright before God and who are not. So uh, you have to state that at the outset, that God only knows those who are the elect, right? But scripture does speak to those, those evidences of someone who is God's child. Nonetheless, Edward says, uh, Jesus has given us rules by which we may from our judging of others' sincerity. These rules aren't the ones the typical church of our day has enshrined. So listen to this. He starts with the negative. Here are some things he says do not prove whether someone is truly converted or not. And these are summarized in my own words. But these are things that do not prove someone is truly converted. One, heightened emotions prove nothing one way or the other. Having intense emotions. Now, this is this should be obvious, right? But often we take somebody's changed emotions as proof of them coming to the Lord. But the fact of the matter is, is we can go from having a depressing day to being uh, extremely exuberant because some men are tossing a football down a field, right? So emotions and emotionalism don't prove anything one way or the other. Two, heightened emotions which cause the body to react, feigning, falling to the ground, jumping up and down, or walking down the aisle prove nothing one way or the other. Well, in that, he's reacting to something that happened during the first great awakening and the second great awakening is um, some some evangelistic preachers would stir up uh, crowds and and there would be uh, at times people falling down as if dead and there would be, especially during the Second Great Awakening, there people would bark like dogs or people would walk up the aisle. Strange things would happen. And he says, look, this is heightened emotions. And um, heightened emotions that make your body react don't prove anything one way or the other. Three, another thing that does not prove someone is truly converted. Increased and intense talk about spiritual things proves nothing one way or the other. 
uh, we can talk about spiritual things before we're converted in a way that makes it seem as if we're converted. People can talk about um, religious experiences or spiritual experiences, and we hear it in a certain way, and they're saying it in a certain way, but in the end, that is not what proves whether somebody is a Christian or not. Fourth, a claim that a person did not produce these affections by his own efforts proves nothing one way or the other. Uh, somebody claiming, look, I, you know, I wasn't feeling this way, and then I, I, you know, and then God did a work, and now things are different. That does not prove somebody's a Christian or not. That's a, a perception. And five, that scriptures unaccountably come to mind proves nothing one way or the other. That we can have scriptures come to our mind doesn't prove whether we are gods or not. Satan and tempting Jesus had scriptures come to his mind. Uh, there are um, scripture is is literature that some people read, and a lot of I mean culturally there are scriptures that we know that could pop into the mind, but that does not prove that somebody's a Christian. That scripture. Uh, comes to mind. Six, that there is an appearance of love to Christ in our affections proves nothing one way or the other. It may, we could, uh, we could look like we love Jesus in worship. We could raise our hands. We could have a great show of emotion. We could talk about Jesus. And Edwards says that doesn't prove anything one way or the other. Why? It can be faked. Seven, that there is a combination of intense affections, love, sorrow, fear, gratitude, proves nothing one way or the other. Uh, so this combination of intense affections that you go from love to, to sorrow to fear to gratitude proves nothing. Eight, that comfort and joy are said to be in the heart of a person proves nothing one way or the other. There are natural things that give us comfort right? Natural things that give us joy. Uh, we could, if, if this were our criteria for who's a Christian or not, everybody who eats a piece of key lime pie would be considered a Christian, right? That joy that fills the heart. And, um, nine, that someone spends a lot of time at church in Bible study and worship and private devotions, etc., proves nothing one way or the other. That somebody uh, gives their time to the church. That somebody gives their time to even, he said, Bible study, uh, proves nothing one way or the other. That again can be counterfeited. That again can be done by the natural man. And um, number 10, that someone uses his mouth to praise God proves nothing one way or the other. Right? And that, that makes you think of the verse, you know, uh, where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Those who, who um, gave thanks to God, those who praise God, those who cast out demons in his name, right? <clears throat> Did we not do these things in your name? And uh, that doesn't prove anything one way or the other. That someone is confident of God's favor proves nothing one way or the other. That someone is confident, that they have um, confidence that uh, God is, is for them. They can be deluded. Twelve, that someone gives a great testimony of God's work proves nothing one way or the other. Somebody having an intense 
testimony of God's work in their life, right? I went from the gutter and and near death and drunkenness, and now I know Christ. How many times have I had people tell me their remarkable story, only to see them go back to their idols, right? Only to see them return back to the things that uh, at one point they served and said they gave up, right? So that doesn't prove that somebody uh, has the work of the Spirit in them. And so, I mean, after that list, you, you might be scratching your head, you know, <clears throat> but take, if you want, take the time to slog through Edward's arguments for each of them, right? I put a, a link in the chat box of this for uh, a free copy of the Religious Affections. But as you read through his arguments, you begin to understand why he put them on his doesn't prove a thing list. In a nutshell, all of the Above 12 are actions we can do, think, feel, or manufacture ourselves. That's the thing. They're things that, that anybody can do or manufacture, counterfeit, or feel ourselves. They can arise in any man whether or not the Holy Spirit has gone to work on his dead heart. And so what follows, on the other hand, are some indicators that Edwards says are distinguishing signs of truly gracious and holy affections. And again, these are my summaries and my words, and there are 14 of them. Let me go through them very quick. One, the affections of the heart are changed from outside the self by a spiritual, supernatural, and divine work. Right? So these are not... It's not self-effort that leads to these things. It's the effort of the Spirit in, in changing us. Two, the affections, these holy desires and longings and, and um, apprehensions of God, arise first or primarily from a view of God's perfection and only secondarily from an understanding of what he has done for us. I think that's a huge point. The affections arise first and primarily from a view of God's perfection, only secondarily from an understanding of what he has done for us, right? So, you know, what that says to me is that, that we know our affections are genuine when we're simply in awe of God. And it isn't just about, well, God did this and God did that and God did this for me and God did that for me. It first is perceiving that there is a God and that this God is glorious and that he is beautiful before you get to even any of the benefits of being in covenant relationship with that beautiful and gracious God. And so that's primary. Um, you, you view God's perfections. Three, fundamental and essential to a genuine love for God is a love for his holiness. Okay, again, that is to, is to think upon God, not as he benefits us, but as God is in and of himself. And being wicked, sinful creatures, it is not natural for us to think of holiness as a beautiful thing. Right. And so it is only by the work of the spirit where you can you can perceive God and think holiness is glorious because it's one of God's perfections. 
Fourth, the enlightened mind not only thinks right thoughts about God, but his mind is governed by the heart, which relishes and feels God's greatness. Here's Edward, Edward's illustration of this. He that has perceived the sweet taste of honey knows much more about it than he who has only looked upon it and felt it. Right? So those who have tasted honey know it's glorious um, goodness and its sweetness. Uh, the one who's looked on it or felt it, you know, um, just has to go away and wash his sticky hands. Right. So, uh, so it is with, with the, the mind that has tasted the goodness of the Lord. Five, a Christian has faith as it is defined in Hebrews 11, assurance of things expected. Edwards writes, they no longer halt between two opinions. The great doctrines of the gospel cease to be any longer doubtful things or matters of opinion, which, though probable, are yet disputable. But with them, they are points settled and determined, as undoubted and indisputable, so that they are not afraid to venture their all upon the truth. Right? So, so the one who who's the Spirit is working in, and that faith exists in is no longer bouncing between two opinions, right? They, they believe what is written in God's word. And that is a work of the spirit. They believe it and they don't waver. They have faith. They believe uh, the faith that's defined as assurance of things hoped for. Six, the Christian knows his own despicableness and yet still approaches God as a gracious father. You know, we could, we could have perceptions of our despicableness and, uh, and run away from God. You know, you think of the apostle Peter on the boat when he first met Jesus and uh, Jesus causes them to catch the fish. And Peter's first words are, depart from me. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinner. Well, um, <clears throat> he doesn't just uh, say that and demand that it be, but he goes on and follows Jesus Christ, right? And so a Christian knows his own sinfulness. He knows he's terrible. And yet he still goes to God, who is holy, as a father, Right? As a father who forgives, as a father who remembers that his children are but dust, as a father who has mercy upon his children, who is compassionate toward his children. Seventh, a Christian has undergone a change of nature. Edwards writes, a man may be restrained from sin before he is converted, but when he is converted, his very heart and nature is turned from it unto holiness, so that thenceforward he becomes a holy person, and an enemy to sin, right? So before you're converted, there are certain sins and certain sinfulness you can resist. You can um, you can fight against them, and uh, you know we we all know people who aren't Christians who may who are moral, right? Who who know what they're doing, but the converted man, <clears throat> the converted man, has a changed heart, changed affections, changed nature that lead to holiness. It's not just a, a work of the self. It's not just 
um, self-determination. It's work from the inside that leads to the outward. Eighth, the Christian life lives a life after the pattern of Jesus Christ. There's a very simple statement, right? Those who are converted live a life patterned after the example of Christ, right? We see what we we see what he did, and we imitate it. We see how he lived because he was the righteous one. He was the covenant keeper, right? And we imitate it, and we desire to imitate it. Nine, a Christian has an always soft heart or an ever tender conscience, right? One of the, one of the I think, <clears throat> One of the proofs that you're a Christian, that you know the Lord, is that you have a soft conscience. It bothers you when you sin, right? It bothers you <clears throat> when you sin in even the littlest of way. It bothers you, you know, you, you, um, your teacher asks you uh, to turn in a paper and you get it to him late and you have an excuse that you completely fabricated and you use it and the teacher accepts it and accepts your paper. Well, the Christian goes away from that and is immediately spitten, uh, smitten by the fact that he just lied, right? That he didn't do as Jesus would have done, right? The, the, the conscience of the Christian is active. It is constantly uh, praising or correcting, Right. And so um, very uh, the Christian has a tender conscience. Ten, a Christian is well balanced in his affections. He's neither always joyful nor always sorrowful. And I, I think that's a wonderful statement and a wonderful, you know, provocation to us who tend to be either melancholy or be giddy all the time. Right. And so um, the Christian is well balanced because. Uh, because he he's resting in God, because he knows that God is sovereign. And so he doesn't have to bounce between these extreme emotions in life, right? Um, our emotions can, can be used to manipulate people, right? And if, if you're a, a chronic, if you're a person who's chronically sorrowful, it's likely that you're simply attempting to make people be, uh, to be sad, or to make people feel bad for you, right? Or conversely, if you're, you know, always on cloud nine and you're always, um, you're always uh, joyful, uh, you can be manipulating uh, just as much uh, with that. And so <clears throat> the Christian is well balanced in his affections because his affections are brought by the Holy Spirit. 11, and he's getting to the end here and he's <clears throat> getting to the, the main issue. 11, a Christian has an, <clears throat> excuse me, an ever <clears throat> increasing appetite for holiness. Christian has an ever increasing appetite for holiness. His life is a crescendo of wanting to be holy, right? Is it, because as he knows God and as he studies God and as he reads his word and gets to know him, then the the increase toward holiness will and should be the desire of his heart. Twelve, a Christian bears fruit through real obedience to God's word. Real obedience to God's word. 
the Christian is not just somebody who stumbles into obedience, who um, by his own nature does some things right, some things wrong. Now, a Christian actually obeys the word, reads the word, <clears throat> finds out what it says and what it means, and does it. That is what the Christian life is like. And then 13 and 14 really, I think, is a summary and the, the complete uh, picture of what it of how we know that we're a Christian. Holiness of life is the chief sign of grace in the Christian, visible to others. You shall know them by their fruits, Matthew 7, 16. Holiness of life. That's what Edwards says it all comes down to. You want to know whether you're a Christian. You want to know whether or not you uh, have um, the spirit at work in you. Then people will see your holiness. People will see your holiness. People will see you obeying the word. People will see you attempting to be like Jesus Christ. And so holiness of life that's visible to others. And then the next, the other side of the coin is number 14. He says, holiness of life is a sure evidence of grace in the Christian to a person's own conscience. Hereby, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So holiness of life is visible to others and it's perceivable to the self and the conscience, right? We delight in holiness because we know it pleases God the Father, right? So that holiness of life is what I think it boils down to. How do you know whether you're, you have truly religious affections? How do you know whether you are God's child? There's evidence of holiness of life, both in your own conscience and visible to other people. There's fruit. We will know them by their fruit, right? So in the end, Edwards concludes that holiness of life, real, tangible, visible obedience to God's commands in his word is the ultimate distinguishing characteristic of the Christian. And so let me, let me end this way with just a, a few minutes of this. Holiness of life, right? If there is no desire, if you have no desire to be holy. If you have no desire to, uh, if you if you don't have a conscience that needs to know what God's word says, and a conscience that perceives that God Himself is holy, well, then you should not have great hopes that you are a Christian, right? And that, now I'm not saying Christians sin, right? The sin nature is is still in us. And uh, there is indwelling sin still in us, is what I meant to say. And uh, we will sin. And that, that will arise from our unbelief and that will arise from terrible things. But if, there, if you just find that there is no desire to please God and to know his word and obey it, well, then the Holy Spirit may not be at work in you. And, and then I also want to say this. Um, I wrote at the bottom of my page, God first. God first. Are you in awe of God, right? Are you 
genuinely like like looking at the the height of uh, of a mountain or the depth of a canyon and you're just in awe of it are you even more so in awe of god uh, the god who who is there the god who created all things visible and invisible the god who sustains the universe the god who who uh knows you intimately because he knits you together in your mother's womb the god who who sent his son in order to redeem you the god who holds you within his hand and will not allow any any power to uh, pluck you out of his hand are you in awe of god um he is holy and so in knowing him what follows is we desire to be like him and the Holy Spirit makes that a reality, right? The Holy Spirit makes that a reality. To know God is to desire to be holy as he is holy. If we don't know God, holiness will remain unattractive to us, right? It's, it's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if um, you know, if, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then just let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if Jesus has been risen from the dead, then there's no higher joy than to be like that conquering king. There's no higher joy than to be like Jesus. Um, holiness of life is the appropriate response to the utter glory and beauty and perfection of God. That's the appropriate response. And so let me, let me close by reading that Matthew 7. 16 through 20 passage, which I believe is the summary, is where Edwards gets his stuff from, right? This is Jesus' teaching. This is Scripture's teaching on this. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. That is the point of this. You will know them by their fruits. You will know them. You will know of yourself and you will know of others, whether or not uh, they have a genuine profession if there is fruitfulness and fruitfulness means obedience to God's commands. It means pursuing holiness. It means um, repenting and pursuing holiness and finding our joy in the holiness of God, finding our joy in that, imitating that, pursuing that um, because God is holy and we love God. That's my that's my exhortation tonight. And it, again, it, it derives from the sense that I think we, we need to get back to first things. We need to get back to the simple love for God that has always been a part of the evangelical faith and, um, <clears throat> and pursue our relationship with God. I was convicted about this when Steve Berenzi came up. And Steve Berenzi was the, is my friend, longtime friend. And I, I love Steve uh, 
he's eloquent. He's all those things, but above all, he's godly. And um, Steve Berenzi recently, I, I met with him in Greenville, and he drove up to Caesar's Head from Columbia, where he lives. And he's the sort of guy that you see sitting on a rock beside the trail with a Bible and a hymnal, praising God. And it convicted me that, and, and here's the other thing. He's not on Facebook. He wrote an article for Thirst, First Things about the, the corrupting influence of Facebook, right? He's not on these things. He's, he's a Luddite, right? He, he's uh, kept himself from that. But what I see in him is godliness and a love for the Lord that's just evangelical and lovely. And he pursues his relationship with God. He goes out and sits on a rock and sings his praises. He goes out and reads the word and just looks over his creation and delights in the Lord. And we all <clears throat> need to do that. And we need to do that because God requires it of us. And that is obedience to him. We need to do it because we are getting so caught up in the things of the world. And we need to set our minds on the things above. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Jonathan Edwards. Father, we thank you that uh, his words, along with your words, uh, stirred us up this evening. And Father, so take what is, uh, what is true um, and help us to remember it and help us to forget what is false in his words. They're not inerrant. But Father, your word is inerrant. It is always right. It is always authoritative. And so, Father, I pray that we would give ourselves to it and pursue you. Father, for those who heard me that do not find that they have these affections, Lord God, I pray that your spirit would work in their hearts. I pray that they would have the joy of seeing your face and being in awe of your glory, in awe of your strength, in awe of your holiness. And that they would find that their entire life is then written for them as a pursuit of God and a delighting in who you are. Lord, help us in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, dear brothers and sisters. Have a good night. We will be in touch during the week uh, about the upcoming service. But, uh, and if you have any comments or questions from the live stream or from being here at the building this morning, please get in touch with me. If there are things that we can do better, uh, let me know and uh, we'll try to do them better. Thanks. Love you very much. Good night.